those things that were brought also. So good morning. My name's Raj. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee. If you're a visitor, once again, I just want to welcome you. We love having visitors with us. I can see a few student guys over there. Um, it's great having you guys with us as well. Uh, make this your home. An invitation. Make this your home, church. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to uh, James chapter 5? James chapter 5, we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 6. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. I'll be putting, um, uh, or Jackie will be putting the uh, verse up on the, the chapter up on the screen. As most of you know, we've been working through the book of James over the last few months. It's been a fascinating journey, hasn't it? Uh, and guess what? We've now come to chapter 5, the last chapter. Doesn't, uh, doesn't time go quick when you're having fun? Over the last few months, many of you will have been shocked uh, at the in-your-face direct nature of James's God-inspired writing, his God-inspired warnings and wisdom often. Over the months, this letter has opened up for us, I think, very important subjects, um, often uh, subjects that we'd rather not talk about, uncomfortable things maybe, like handling suffering and persecution with joy, like the hypocrisy of a supposed faith without action, all talk and no deeds, like handling our tongue as Sarush unpacked, uh, unpacked for us excellently one morning. Like division in the church, like arrogance, like judgmentalism. And he hits all these, often with, a, with seemingly aggressive tones. Have you noticed? And I think the reason why James teaches us, if you like, with verbal punches is because he realizes that the church, with all its teaching, good teaching, on love and grace, excellent teaching, biblical teaching, can sometimes result in us resting on our laurels, becoming lazy maybe, complacent, about what Christian maturity is really all about. And that's a life growing in obedience and worship to Jesus. A life that doesn't just stand still, but rather becomes more and more like Jesus every day through every experience that God puts on in our way. The good, the good, the bad, the ugly. So how are you doing? How are you finding James's teaching? Are you allowing God the Holy Spirit to move you on? Are you? Well, this morning, once again, we are going to be challenged. Uh, this morning's warning is as heavy as it gets, scarily so, really. You'll see what I, you'll see what I mean by that as you read the uh, passage in a minute. And do you know what? I think there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason for why James addresses it in this way. And it's because... And it's, be, it's because this morning we're going to be addressing the important, very important topic of money and finances and possessions. And you know what? Although we try and avoid this topic, although we find it uncomfortable, the Bible doesn't. 
Jesus himself taught about money about 20, 25% of the time, about, the, about a quarter of the time. Did you know that? That means if we as elders were to follow the pattern of Jesus, we'd be having a sermon about money every month. You wouldn't like that, would you? Why did Jesus talk about it so much? I'll tell you why. Because he knew that in many ways, money, finances, how we handle our possessions is the key indicator for us of our spiritual life, about where our priorities lie. Jesus is the one who said your wallet or your purse is the place that your heart reveals itself most accurately. So this morning I want to unpack some hopefully helpful things about what the Bible says about money and possessions. If you're relatively new to Jubilee or new to the Christian faith, some of you guys on Alpha, uh, God particularly wants you to hear this. God is interested in every part of our life, including how we use our money and our possessions. So um, let's read, shall we? James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Now just by the way, before we uh, head off, um, compared to the rest of the world, that means virtually all of us. Did you hear that? Because you don't own a car with a coffee machine and a swimming pool in it, please don't think this isn't for you. It is. So I'm going to start again. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. That means repent. Because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He doesn't miss anything. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Thanks, Paul. Let's pray. We're going to need it. Lord Jesus... I thank you for this passage. I thank you for every, every word in scripture. I thank you for James and how he has put together this God-inspired book. And I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning, as we preach on money and possessions, as we preach on treasure, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will show, up, show us how you are our treasure. And how that changes everything. I pray, Lord God, that you open our hearts as we talked about and sang about this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you open our hearts to the truth. I pray that we don't feel condemned or manipulated in any way. I pray, Lord God, that grace touches each and every person here as we open up this very important subject. Lord Jesus, be with us. Holy Spirit, be with us, we pray. 
Amen. So, serious warnings, yeah? James is trying to get our attention. Once again, he's got mine. Has he got yours? Yeah. So, three headings that I've got, uh, not to, just so I don't break any rules, preaching rules. Uh, three truths this morning um, about that passage. Firstly, remember, firstly, remember, your money is not your money, point one. Secondly, point two, watch out. Your money can be a trap. Thirdly, finally, praise God, your money can be a blessing. Your money's not yours, your money can be a trap, and your money can certainly be a blessing. That's where we're going to be going this morning. So firstly, your money is actually not your money. You're not the owner. Don't be fooled, Jubilee. Get real, the Bible says. We are stewards of God's money. You see, everything we have belongs to God. Everything we have comes from God. And everything we have goes back to God. We are God's stewards. That's what the Bible teaches us, doesn't it? So what on earth is a steward? A steward is someone who manages, looks after, uses wisely the assets, the possessions of someone else. You see, it's not theirs to mess about with. And because it's not theirs, but someone else's, they have to be careful, thoughtful, think about what they do with it. That's what a good steward does. And what James, in this passage, in case you didn't realize, what James is very vividly describing here is a steward who's reckless. Because deep down, he doesn't realize who his possessions belong to. I was there recently, uh, one night before the kids were going to bed, uh, looking through our handicam shots um, on the computer, and what I found was really funny was that one of the most commonly used words when our children, Jess and Jemima, were around two years old was the word mine. Have you noticed that? That's mine, Daddy. Get off, Jemima. That's mine. My seat, my Buzz Lightyear, my cork, my side of the car, my bed, my room, my TV. We teach them well. Mine. Hilarious, really, for a two-year-old. Because the reality of it is that their stuff wasn't actually their stuff at all. It was actually mine. (laughs) I, we, provided it for them. They didn't earn any of it. But these immature two-year-olds couldn't get their heads around this simple fact. All their stuff was given to them as a gift from someone much larger and wiser, allegedly, than them. But they just didn't get it. You see, kids can be quite fickle like that, can't we? Can't they? Not like us, grown-ups. By the way, who do you think all your wealth belongs to? And by your wealth, I mean your job, your income, your retirement, your, uh, your retirement account, your savings, your assets, your possessions, your home, your investments, your car, your inheritance, all of it. Who do you think owns all of your wealth? You or God? 
do you naturally think mine or his? And if your answer to that is really, well, it's God's, my question to you would be this. Would that be evident? Would that be crystal clear when someone looked at your budgeting or your giving or your spending? Ouch! Hurt me anyway. You see, the reason I've highlighted this point right at the very start is that when it comes to financial dealings and wealth, the sin beneath all other sins is an issue, is the issue of ownership. You see, are you like Jesh and Jemima? It's mine. Or do you have a biblical perspective? Very important. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, all who live in it. God says, it's all mine. Psalm 50.10, Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills, all the stick, it's all mine. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All the credit cards, debit cards, all mine. Remember, what, remember I missed a little bit in chapter 1 uh, when we started this series, and I said I'd get back to you in November. Um, it says in chapter 1, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, that's Greek for get real, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Jubilee, God says it's mine. And so if it is all his stuff, and it is, then the natural follow-on from that is this. I can't do with it what I want to do with it. I need to do what he wants me to do with it. What I should never ask, really, is how much of my wealth should I give to God? 10%, 20%, 3%? Instead, the question should really be, how much of God's wealth can I keep for myself? You see the difference? It's an issue of ownership. Jubilee, getting this fundamental truth right in our heads and our hearts radically changes our attitude and our spending and our giving and our use of money. It really does. And it's very, very important. Simple, maybe, superficially. But actually, it drives deep to the very bottom of our soul. So point one, who do you think owns your wealth? God does. It's mine. All mine, says God. I'm calling you all, Jubilee, to a life of godly stewardship. Yeah? Secondly, the Bible warns us, this passage warns us, money for many of us can be a trap. Don't be deceived. Question, who do you worship or what do you worship? I guess the answer to that question depends on your understanding of what worship is. Because worship and money actually go hand in hand. You see, biblical worship, biblical worship is an act 
of ascribing, placing, giving absolute, ultimate value to someone or something in a way that energizes and brings alive your whole person. It makes you do what you do. It makes you think what you think. Your fears, your anxieties, your joys, your entire being is determined, Jubilee, by what you worship. And we all worship something we do. We tend to live in a world that thinks, well, there's some of us who are religious and they worship, and the rest of us, we're not religious, so we don't worship anything. Rubbish. When you truly understand what worship is, you realize that we all, whether we're Christian or not, all ascribe ultimate value to something. Our whole lives are already orientated, controlled by something to which we give absolute attention, honor, worth, and time. So what do you worship? Why do I ask that? Because this, I ask that because this is key to how money can be a trap. Probably one of the most misquoted verses in the whole of the Bible is probably one, is in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Many people say, there you go, there you have it. Money is the root of all evil. Money's bad. Try not to have very much of it. Don't tell anyone if you have. Feel bad, really bad, if you have lots. But that's not a biblical view at all. That's not what this verse is getting at, is it? It's an issue, actually, of worship. It isn't money that is the root of all evil. Money, actually, is neither good nor bad. It's just money. It's the love, the worship of money, which is the root of all evil. Jesus said in uh, Matthew... Uh, 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's the trap, Jesus says. When money becomes our God, your God, when you worship money, just like any old idol in our lives, and there's lots of them, we end up loving it, trusting it, obeying it, pursuing it with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our mind, with all our soul. The, the Bible talks about this a lot. It calls it idolatry, worshipping created things above him, God, the only one worthy of our worship. You see, you see, we worship a jealous God. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't like us flirting with others. He calls us to recognize him, this beautiful God, as our one true spouse, our lover, the one who captivates our mind, who we yearn for, who we get excited over, who we can't wait to be, want more of every day. He's a jealous God. However, the sin beneath all other sin is replacing this God with another. Flirting. Worshipping, say, money instead of God. Spiritual adultery. And do you know what? It breaks God's heart. Tim Keller writes, a New York pastor, 
who some of you might think is one of my idols, if you know me, but he's not. Tim Keller writes, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best way to describe it is worship. So that is the money trap. We see it in this passage, don't we? James highlights quite a few ungodly uses of money, doesn't he? He talks about hoarding money, piling it up greedily. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. He talks about the fraudulent use of money. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. He talks about godly indulgence. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. These are the traps we can fall into. Bad stewardship out of a heart that loves, worships money over God. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, watch out, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist In the abundance of possessions. Why? Why doesn't it consist in the abundance of our possessions? Because that's not where we get security, honor, love, or pleasure from. Money will always, always fail us in the end. Only when you see God's love more valuable and satisfying and beautiful than any kind of other love will you never be freaked out again over the love of your money. Only when you realize that God's honor and your relationship with him is more fulfilling and uplifting than any other honor or pleasure will you not be freaked out by not having enough money. Only when you realize that God's provision is faithful and reliable will you not be rocked by the financial ups and downs of this world? And you know what? If you keep getting freaked out, if you keep finding yourself rolled around emotionally, if you're constantly struggling with anxiety, nervousness, or fear of not having enough, not saving enough, not even not being able to buy enough, then nothing less, nothing less than reassigning the ultimate value of your life From where it is to God will heal you and change you and make you infallibly happy and secure again. It's an issue of worship. Do you see that? By the way, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you this morning could replace your unstable, never satisfying love of money with God, with Jesus. The one who always, always loves you, no matter what. The one who always satisfies you. The one who always forgives you when you fail him. The one who went out of his way to get you by dying on the cross. The only God who you can really trust. The only God who will never distort your life. Rather, he'll transform it beyond your wildest dreams. You could be his this morning. How about that? Jubilee, the bottom line, do you worship your money as God 
Or do you worship God with your money? That's the gist of what James is getting at this morning. Two very different things. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, uh, 17, command those who are rich in this present world, remember, most of us here, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So money, it's all his, not yours. You are his stewards. Be good ones. And also, watch out. Money can be a trap. It can be, it's addictive. It can blind you to the truth of what God has called you to do. What do you worship? We need to be honest with ourselves. Thirdly and finally, money can also be a great, great blessing. It really is. It really can be. When you read the Old Testament, it's really clear that the people of Israel viewed their material wealth with excitement as gifts straight from God. They saw their possessions as a father's loving provision for his children. And as grateful kids, regularly they celebrated the harvest, national feasts, recognizing and rejoicing in God for what he gave them, good things. Yoo-hoo, they'd say, every year. Deuteronomy 6.15 says, For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all, your, in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. Yoo-hoo! Money can be a great blessing from God. Smile. It's all right. And the key point here, what moves money from being a trap to great blessing is what our heart motivates us to do with it. It's what we do with it. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.18, command the rich, most of us, command the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. You see, that's the deal. That's why, that's why money is such a blessing. And that's why James's warning that we read at the beginning here is so damning. God says to each of us here, Jubilee, I entrust to you, every one of you, a portion of everything that is mine. Now go and do good with it. Be deeply generous with it. Share, share it with those in need. Show your church, show your friends, colleagues, family, show those in the world who you bump into, the down and outs, the seemingly undeserving, the rock bottom, uh, the, the, rock, the rock bottoms, everyone, that I am a generous God who abundantly provides for those in need. That's how God wants us to steward his money. That's how God's money becomes a blessing to us, the church, and to Teesside and beyond. Do you believe the more our wealth rises, if we are to be true to the Bible, true to our vision, true to Jesus, the more our wealth rises, the more our standard of giving will rise as opposed to our standard of living. 
the more money that God richly provides for us, and hear this, the greater the gap there should be between how we could live and how we do live. That's the deal. And I tell you what, if we're really honest, most of us probably don't believe half of the stuff that I've talked about so far. What the Bible teaches us about money. Wholeheartedly, I mean. Or our giving would look very, very different. Now, the big question here, always, when we talk about money, is how much do I have to give to the church? To the ministry as a Christian? How much? Why can't the Bible just spit it out and say, give this much? Jill? Give this much? Peter? Why do we have to work it out? Is it tithing? Giving a tenth of everything I have to the church? Will that do, God? God, what's the formula to work it out? Why isn't the Bible clear? You might not say that out loud like I have. But you're often thinking about it. I am. Jubilee, the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to giving. And do you know what? It challenges us to the very foundation of our faith. Yeah, you're right. There is no formula to giving. The Bible is written so that, it, so that it applies to every culture, in every generation, in every place, at every time. Formulas like that just wouldn't work for a God-inspired book that speaks to so many people throughout history in so many different generations. It wouldn't work, would it? But more importantly, the fundamental about giving in the New Testament is actually not about formulas or figures anywhere. It's about a heart, a heart that is in love with and pursuing and growing in love for God. So how do we decide what to keep? How much do we give away to the church, to the works of the kingdom? What does the Bible tell us? Probably the most informative passage on giving to the church in the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, a letter from the Apostle Paul. And I think here we see the principles of giving in action. So what's the background to Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Well, there's a church in a region called Macedonia, and they are under, it says, extreme poverty. Petrol prices are going crazy. Camels that were guzzling huge amounts of fuel at the Esau garage. Furthermore, the mud hut market had tanked. The economy had crashed a while ago and wasn't really recovering. There was unemployment, pay freezes. The government were getting all mean on benefits. Or something like that in their day. Extreme poverty. And it says, hear this, they were poor and out of their poverty welled up generosity. Wow. That's where we start to get a glimpse of New Testament giving. See, when you guys get raised 40k earlier this year, I think it was this year, was it the end of last year, Um, after Andy Merrick prophesied that that we were a people 
Oh, God, it was ages ago. Um, as Andy Merrick prophesied that we were to be a people who break the spirit of poverty on Teesside. Do you know what? It was awesome. It was completely opposite to what made sense in the midst of economic turmoil, wasn't it? But over the months and years, I believe God, through that welling up of generosity in the midst of hardship, broke something in all of us. There was a joy about it, wasn't there? I remember there was a joy about it. There was an excitement of adventure. God was on the move. Do you remember that time? So just to say, well done, Jubilee. Well done. But that was a start. Our adventure together in God hasn't finished, by the way. It goes on. We talk about it regularly in elders' meetings. Over the years to come, God is calling us to take very seriously our giving, our fueling of the vision that God is unfolding before us. And as I was preparing this, I felt God say, go back to the basics, Raj. Back to the basics of church, New Testament giving. And so really what I want to spend a few moments highlighting is what the Bible teaches about New Testament giving. How do we decide what to give? Briefly, four things. Briefly, four principles. We are, firstly, we, are, we give out of an understanding of grace. We are called not to give out of obligation, but rather out of a heart that is so moved by what Jesus has done for us to the point where we cannot help pouring out our riches to him who gave us, gives us so much. You see, our giving is motivated by his giving. It's contagious. It becomes a privilege. And by the way, in case you're not sure, we cannot outgive God, can we? It says this in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He gave us everything we need, absolutely everything. Not because we deserved it, not because we were smart or clever or wiser or even good. It was an act of pure love, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Jubilee, we give out of an understanding, out of an experience of God's grace to us. Secondly, we give purposefully. You see, we can drift in our giving when we're not actively, systematically, prayerfully giving. We can just dwindle. God calls us to think about our giving. He calls us to enter into a real dialogue with him. Through prayer, through the prophetic, through reading the word. What is he saying to you? 
What is he calling you to give? What adventure of faith is he asking you to join him on? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or not under compulsion. It's very important. Jubilee, we don't ask anyone, we don't force anyone to give anything here. No manipulation. In fact, if that's how you feel, we'd rather you didn't give. Giving begrudgingly isn't biblical. It's not honoring to God. It doesn't serve his kingdom purpose. But at the same time, we want to encourage you onto the faith trip that is giving. Motivated by Jesus. Motivated by the word of God. Thirdly, we give cheerfully and sacrificially. Really, that's what the Apostle Paul says in 2, um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, the English translation, as many of you will have heard, um, the English translation of the Greek actually dumbs it down. The Greek word translated cheerful is actually more like hilarious. I can't get any higher than that. Hilarious! The Bible links generous giving with joy. It really does. C.J. Mahaney, when talking about the Greek word for cheerful, hilarious giving, says this. What does hilarious giving look like? It's just short of delirious. (laughs) I remember Jeremy used to say, how much do you have to give before you start laughing? Jubilee, we give cheerfully. But cheerful giving also goes hand in hand with sacrificial giving. It costs us. Sacrificial giving to the eye-popping proportions that the Bible calls us to means we should feel it. Sacrificial giving means making radical lifestyle adjustments to the point of not having what our other people's peers, people like us, have. For some of you, that might be giving away 10%. For some of you, it might be 50%. I don't know. That is between you And Jesus. It really is. We're not going to tell you the exact amount. But when you give that amount, you should feel it. Otherwise, it's actually not a sacrifice. Fourthly, we also give proportionally, regularly, and generously. I've deliberately put all those together. God calls us to sensible, systematic, thought-out, planned, generous, lavish giving. That might mean monthly or weekly to you, not just when you feel like it. Many of you give by standing order as planned, regular giving. Thank you. That really helps us to plan, actually, too. That helps us actually be better, wiser stewards of your money, of God's money. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. The Old Testament called this tithing. They gave away a tenth of their gross wealth to the Levites, who were the priests of the time, uh, to, to fund what was then church ministry. On top of that, they gave away a tenth towards festivals and feasts and holidays. On top of that, they gave about 3 to 4% to the poor. The average Hebrew would probably give upwards of 27% of what 
of work, of money to the work of the church. That's challenging for us, isn't it? It certainly challenges me. And that's just Old Testament giving. We're in the new. Jesus never, ever lowered the bar. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, whether he's talking about anger or marriage or relationships, your neighbor, the needy, pride, prayer, Jesus always, always called us to a higher place, motivated by the highest gift of all, himself. And giving is not an exception. Jubilee is God moves us into the next phase, growing beyond the 250 mark. Resource giving is going to be, the, I would say, one of the biggest factors. As we move in faith and bring on Simon, wherever you are, uh, full-time, as we bring on Simon full-time, as we bring on others, that's not going to happen without God speaking to all of us about increasing our giving. As Paul has been impressing on us over the last... Um, Quite a few months. If we want to grow, if we want to see our God-given vision, our Isaiah 61 vision move forward, if we want to see the prophetic wells unblocked, um, we need to build a bigger staff team, more than just Simon, actually, in Jubilee and in Open Door, actually. A team to build and coordinate a growing ministry, reaching out, growing diversity, loving the poor, the needy, caring for each other pastorally, looking to the nations, being part of Christ's central churches together, birthing leaders, serving Teesside. That's our God-given vision, isn't it? And I, be, and I believe God is calling us to invest in people to make his promises happen. That's very scriptural. Jubilee, God is calling us to get on the faith trail. God is calling us to faithfully fuel the mission of Jubilee, to take it seriously. What is your role? This year, we have a £30,000 faith gap, about, really. Between now and April, next year, there's a budgeted 30k we haven't got yet. A budgeted 30k we haven't got yet. 30k that we are looking to God to release. I want to encourage you all to prayerfully think about your giving. If you're a faithful giver, you know what? Thank you, thank you. You guys have been very faithful over the years. But is God calling you to give more? If you don't give up, if you don't give at all, is God calling you to join us together on a mission? If you've just become a Christian, we don't want you to miss out on the privilege that is giving to God. It really is that. This isn't about how we can fund some strap for cash God. No way. This is about growing in us faith and joy that goes way beyond our money, actually. That transforms our very souls. And if you're thinking, hey, look, I don't have very much. I'm only a refugee. I'm only a student. I'm unemployed. You know what? My contribution isn't worth anything. That's not what God says. God uses everyone's offering from the pences to the pound to the tens to the hundreds of thousands in a way that flabbergasts worldly financial wisdoms 
and sums. The Bible doesn't say test you on very many things, but it says, test me, why don't you, on this. Test him. So where are we? Your money, it's all his. We're his stewards. Your money, it can be a trap. Watch out. Especially for the love of money. Your money, it's also a great blessing. Give to God, understanding his grace. Uh, Give to God, understanding his grace. With purpose, cheerfully, sacrificially, proportionally, regularly, generously. Come on the adventure. Jubilee. To end, Jesus very famously said, this is the message version, very famously said, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile, stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. A really helpful book called Money, Possessions and Eternity by a guy called Randy Olcorn writes this. What is it about this verse? What does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven instead of on earth? It means that Christ offer us, offers us the incredible opportunity to trade earthly goods and currency for eternal kingdom rewards. By putting our money and possessions in his treasury, we assure ourselves of eternal rewards beyond comprehension. That's a sobering thought when it comes to how we handle, handle money, isn't it? Bottom line, all of us are going to die. All the stuff we accumulate here is not going anywhere apart from here. But the Bible gives us an opportunity to send it on ahead of us. Through our giving to God, our sharing, our generosity, our love for the poor, we are making an investment in heaven that is safe and secure. And actually will reap a fortune. On the cross, Jesus conquered death. And now we as Christians, the Bible tells us, will live forever. And so the question we must continually ask ourselves, Jubilee, is this. Is eternity rooted into your soul? Do you have eternity in your spirit? Are we shaped by it? Do we make all of our decisions in light of it? John Piper says, The mark of a Christian is that his eyes are on heaven. And he measures all his behavior by what effect it will have on heaven. Everlasting joy with God. Jesus gave up all his treasure in heaven to make you his treasure. And you know what? When you see him making you his treasure... That will make you see him as your treasure. That's the key. And do you know what? When you see him as your treasure, finally, at last, eternally, forever, you'll be really wealthy in God's eyes. Let's stand, shall we? If the band can come up, that would be great. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a final song. All morning, I felt God has really been speaking to us, heart issues. And obviously, what I've been speaking to is no different. 
God has been speaking about joy into us, about grace. We worship a much bigger God, a good God. You know what? God is enough, Jubilee. We've been speaking about a God who wants to fan the flame of gifts in our lives. He wants us to open our hearts to him this morning. All of our anxieties, fears, pride, he wants those to be brushed aside in Jesus' name. You might think you're not worthy of God this morning. There was something about that. You might think that you want comfort from God at this time because you're in tears. You know what? God is your treasure and he loves you through and through. We're going to take the collection. We're going to sing a song. And while we do that, and while we're singing the song at an appropriate time, can I encourage you? I'm not going to ask anybody to come out to the front because no one ever comes about when you talk about money. (laughs) But actually, it applies to all of us. So what I, would, what I would like to do is, when, 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 when there's an appropriate moment for you, why don't you gather together in groups of about three, four, five, and start praying over people. Ask God to touch our hearts. Ask God to soften our hearts. Ask God to raise our eyes to the future. Ask God to see where are you going with me when it comes to finances and possessions and money, and all other things, whether it's healing, whether it's ministry, whether it's fanning into flame, the gifts that God has given you. Is that all right? So no one's going to say anything from now on. You're just going to go into groups as we sing and worship, and we'll take the collection.